figure out what you want to do and find a way to do it for yourself. Don't mm-hmm. wait for anyone to give you permission. It's Taylor. Welcome back to season two of Girl Gaze Resilience Required. Let's cure your Sunday scaries with a new episode and a mimosa, but hold the OJ. Get ready for a quarantine brunch with me and a panel of refreshingly relatable and inspirationally insightful girl gazers as we chat all things fashion, career building, and adulting. Before I introduce today's guest, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, leave a five-star written review if you have not already, and make sure you're following at Girl Gaze Pod on Instagram. Girl Gazers, today you are meeting Rachel Wilkerson Miller, the deputy editor at Vice Life, who published not one, but two books. Her post-grad career journey began at Elle Magazine as an accessories assistant. Flash forward five years, Rachel landed a leadership role at BuzzFeed, and now she's killing it at Vice. I am so, so excited to have you on today. Introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. As you said, I'm Rachel, and I'm currently at Vice. Before that was at BuzzFeed and was in the magazine industry for a little while. And yeah, that's that's the basic stuff about me. Yeah. And we will totally dive into that. In today's episode, we're talking all things about Rachel's career journey. We're finding out what it takes to be a deputy editor at a major publication and so much more. But before we get started, we always kick things off with the gaze of the week, which is just a thought or realization you've thought about recently and can be big or small. Why don't you start us off? Yeah, I think one thing that I'm realizing this week is that I need to figure out how to better stay in touch with my family. So I'm working on setting up a family FaceTime because I think keeping in touch just via text isn't really working well for us, but we haven't been big phone talkers historically. So I'm trying to get get that on the calendar so my family and I can keep on top of what's going on in our lives more in a more structured way. Yeah, totally. I feel like before quarantine, I had so much FaceTime with people, like in real life FaceTime, not digital FaceTime. And Mm -hmm. now, especially with uh, social distancing and everything becoming the new norm, I feel like setting aside time to actually hop on the phone instead of just texting is super, super important with maintaining relationships. So I I really, really agree with that. Um, I'm curious. So where do you live that you are not with your immediate family? So I live in Brooklyn. Uh, My family's in Michigan. Ah, wow. So you move far. Did you always know that you want to move to New York City? Yes and no. I think I knew I wanted to live in a city. I thought for a while I would maybe end up in Chicago, which is where a lot of people from Michigan go. But um, yeah, I think I had a sense of a small town in Michigan wasn't going to be it for me. But I, I feel pretty flexible on what city. I lived in Houston for a while and I don't have very strong feelings generally, which I think is a good thing that I feel like I can go wherever I need to and happy to stay wherever I am for the most part. Um, but yeah, home hometown wasn't quite for me. Yeah. Yeah. Same. My town is really small. And when I moved to the city back in September, I was like, yes, this is just the energy and everything about New York City. I love. But now it's so different. I mean, it's just so sad that, I mean, the streets are bare and I don't know what it's like in Brooklyn, but I feel like the energy is just missing a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't totally know because I, I go outside so little, but um, I know, right? You know, it's hard to, to say and get a vibe. I think, you know, sometimes I have to go outside to take my dog out, and sometimes I'm taken aback by how normal it feels, but then everyone's wearing masks, so it has this weird dystopian feel, and then other times it feels totally deserted. So it's been a weird few months. Yeah. My gaze of the week is related to careers, and I will do a whole other episode on this, but I'm currently going through a career change, and it's so odd because I have a lot of guests who come on who talk about their career journeys, and I know that careers are never linear, and I know that because I've spoken to so many people about it, but then when it's happening to you, it's weird and it's weird to wrap your brain around and it's scary and everything. But I guess my gaze is just nonlinear career paths is the way to go. Yeah. So you're quarantining in Brooklyn. How are you doing and how are you staying positive? I would say I'm doing fine, all things considered. I really can't complain. Um, I'm really lucky I'm quarantining with my girlfriend. And so having somebody who I adore and who I love spending time with helps a ton. Like I I really feel for people who are with roommates who they're not particularly close to or who are alone and who aren't really happy to be alone because I think that would be really difficult. And I I also feel for people who are quarantining with children and and don't have any childcare right now. So I feel so fortunate. yeah, I think we're we're finding ways to keep it fun, but honestly, I can hang out with her all the time. So that has made it pretty easy. Oh, that's amazing. And I know that you are a big journaler. So tell me a little bit about that and the role of journaling in your quarantine life. You know, it's funny. I think a lot of people have decided to get into journaling right now, which I think makes a ton of sense because we're going through this really historic moment and you want to remember it. Um, but I actually haven't been any more committed to journaling. And in some ways I've been doing it a little bit less, but I think for me, I consider my day-to-day to-do list a form of journaling and my calendar a form of journaling. So I'm just trying to be really on top of that and making sure that I'm writing down those Zoom hangouts with friends or the Google hangouts with friends. Um, And I've tried to make more of a note of things that I'm doing for fun, like Mm. writing down, like started a puzzle today. Like, even though that's not a to-do item, just to keep track of those little things that we've done to, to make quarantine feel fun and exciting. Cause I think those are the things you think you'll remember and you just don't. But I think any aspect of record keeping right now feels like journaling. So saving grocery lists or, you know, things like that can actually in a year or in five years or in 10 years, that will tell you a lot about, you know, what Mm. you were thinking and going through at this time. Oh, I love that so much because I feel like a lot of people in their minds think of journaling as, you know, writing as a diary almost. And it can take so many different forms. I love how you said that, you know, you keep some of your receipts because in five, 10 years from now, you'll look back and it does tell a story and it may bring a memory back to life. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It doesn't that. have to be so intense as people often think it is. It doesn't have to be sitting down and pouring out your feelings every day. It can just be some quick notes or it can be kind of organizing the things that you already have and you're already doing, just making them a little easier to find uh, or like cataloging them a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I actually recently bought the five minute journal. And although I don't do it every day, one of the things that I really, really love about it, and it kind of relates to what you were saying about um, noticing the small positive things that may not be on your actual to do list, like completing a puzzle. But one of the questions in that book is, 
what are three great things that happened today? Mm-hmm. And you know, the other the other day I went to play tennis with my brother. So like I put that on the list. And I feel like activities that you do outside of the house or even in the house mm-hmm. are where at least I'm paying much more attention to them because life is way less busy. At okay. least like when you're on your feet in New York City, things, I don't know, just life is is very, very crazy. It's very different right now for sure. Yeah. Totally. I would love to dive into your role at Vice. So what is your current position and what are your day-to-day responsibilities? So I'm the deputy editor of the Life team. So there's sort of different desks. We've got... um, We've got like the tech team and and we just went through a restructure. So some of this is feeling a little... I'm, I'm trying to remember where everything is now, but basically we have different groups that cover different topics. So the Life desk covers health, money, sex and relationships, and then drugs to some degree. So it's run by my manager, Casey, who's the, de- uh, the editorial director of the Life Desk. Then there's me, the deputy editor. We have a senior editor and then two writers on the team. Wow. So the team isn't even that big. It's not. And it's fairly new. Casey just started last summer. The rest of the team started in, uh, Amy Rose has been there for a while, kind of on different iterations of, of this kind of content. But most of the team started in uh, September. Wow. So do you work with mostly women? Mm-hmm. Yep. How, how is that working with women? It's great. I mean, it's, I'm fairly used to it. That's been the bulk of my career because mm-hmm. I've been in, in lifestyle content for you know most of it. So um, yeah, I'm very, I'm very at home with that and very used to it. And it's, it's lovely. Yeah. I, in my new role at the creative agency, I work, our team is all women as well. And I just, I love the vibe because we all really empower each other and we all really respect each other. Um, and it just, it makes coming to work. I mean, coming to my laptop in my office, right? just so it, I look forward to connecting with all of my coworkers. Yeah. Same. Our team is really close, is really, uh, or, or just has, is really fond of each other. It has a really good, um, just has a really good vibe all the time. We, we make each other laugh a lot and respect each other's work and hold each other accountable for that work. It's, it's a really good group. Oh, I love that. That's so important. I have recently learned and realized that work culture is so important. And if you find yourself in a toxic work environment, um, not going to get too much into it, but I did have an experience. And when you're in it, you don't really realize until yeah. you get out of it. And then you enter a really, really healthy work environment. And you're like, wow, that was kind of messed up. <laughs> Yeah, agree completely. It can be really, you can just totally lose sense of what normal is and should be when you're in one of those situations. Totally. Um, I'm curious how your role has changed during quarantine, what your work from home routine looks like. Um, You know, it hasn't changed dramatically in the sense that I've always just been, you know, on my computer all day. That's pretty much it. So obviously we can't be in the office and we can't meet in person for meetings, but the work doesn't feel or like the structure of it doesn't feel wildly different. I think obviously our content has changed and we're just really both focused on coronavirus, but also the other parts of our lives that have changed since coronavirus happened. Like everything we're doing now is obviously through that lens and no one was expecting that when the year began. Um, but yeah, in terms of my routine, I think I, I was really fortunate that I had a really, really short commute to this office. So I only had to walk 20 minutes. I didn't have to get on the subway anymore. So actually my routine has been really similar because I had cut out that long commute that I was used to. Um, So now it's a similar like, yeah, I can 
I have more time in the morning and evenings because I'm not commuting. That that has stayed the same. Um, so yeah, the biggest change to my routine is that I don't have a sweet green salad for lunch every day, honestly. <laughs> same, <Yeah>. I know. <laughs> Saving a lot of money though. Yeah, sweet sure. green salads. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious if you've written a story recently that you were really proud of. Yeah, actually, um, just yesterday I published a story that I had been working on. I, th- I started in January and got a good chunk of it done. And then coronavirus happened and it was like, well, this isn't the time for it, which is about, uh, it's sort of the quote unquote straight woman's guide to dating women for the first time. Um, and so it just seemed like no one cares about this right now. Uh, and so we put it on the back burner and I just finally got to pick it up again um, in July and I just published it yesterday. So this was one of the, this piece was like my goal for 2020 was publishing this piece. And so um, I'm really excited that it's out in the world and I've gotten some really nice messages and emails from people who, who reached out to say that it you know, they felt really seen by it or they wow. they needed it. So I'm, I'm really, really proud of that. Wow. That's amazing. Did you expect to have that response? You know, I, I didn't really think about it to some degree. I think I was so focused on, you know, sort of writing it and making it everything I had hoped it would be and getting it right in every last detail that I wasn't totally thinking of, of that. Um, and of course it makes sense. Of course people reach out when you write something, personal that like moves them or like feels personal, you know, that they personally connect with. But I, I, I wasn't exactly expecting it. And and that was a really nice surprise. Mm, That's lovely. Um, how did it feel to get that response? It was so moving. I mean, any, I think the other thing that's particularly moving about it is that anytime somebody is reaching out to me about a story like this, they're telling me something about their life that they maybe haven't told anyone before, or maybe haven't told a lot of people before. And that is really special that, that I'm a stranger and they're sharing something really personal with me. That makes me feel really, you know, like I don't take that for granted. I think that's a really incredible thing to have happen. And it makes, it makes me feel really good that people feel comfortable doing that and that they can, that they can share a little bit of themselves with somebody and maybe feel a little bit less alone. Totally, totally. And it means that your work has impact. And I, I mean, I relate to that too with this podcast when people reach out saying that they feel so inspired, as I'm sure people will reach out for this podcast as well. Um, but it just, it feels, if it, it just feels really great. It feels great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And just so rewarding. Was this a personal essay? Did you write in first person? I did write in first person. It was like, a, it was personal to some degree, but I had also interviewed three experts and it was mm-hmm. written in a way, it was written like Q&A style. Um, and I sourced questions from other people who might be questioning or going through this to put it together. But yeah, there was definitely some of my personal experiences in there, which is always, I always, it's always a big deal for me to publish something personal on the internet. So yeah. Totally, totally. And Vice is such a huge platform to be able to share that to yeah. share your story on. Do you typically spend a lot of your time writing personal essays or do you also write a lot of service pieces? For the most part, I'm just writing service. I kind of <laughs> joked when I published that piece yesterday that I've done my one personal essay for the year. And that, this is not even totally an essay, but I, I tend to not do more than that. And that's fine for me. Um, I think... I used to publish like many, many years ago when I was blogging, I would publish more personal things. And I just think it's really good to like let things sit for a long time before you talk about them publicly. And I also kind of feel like most people don't have that many experiences that make for good personal essay fodder. So I try to be really um, intentional about when I'm publishing something personal to make sure that it's like really worth it, that I have processed it enough to be talking about it. Um, So yeah, this is is my one for a while. Um, But for the most part, I'm just doing straight service writing. 
Got it. So how do you balance writing with editing pieces? Because as a deputy editor, I'm sure you're copy editing and maybe commissioning articles. Yeah, my my main job really is editing. Um, so I have a column that I do every other week. And for the most part, that's kind of like the extent of my writing. But when coronavirus happened, uh, it just was kind of this moment of like, all both all hands on deck, but also I felt like, oh, I think I can be helpful in this moment. I think things that I've been researching for my book or that I've been writing about for years are probably going to be helpful for people right now. So I just kind of jumped back into writing and did a little bit less more, less editing during that time. It's starting to swing back now to more editing. I just, I'm, I'm commissioning a bunch of, bunch of freelance work right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's always a little bit hard to, to shift gears and go back and forth. But on the whole, I try to just, I try to be really picky about the things that I'm writing myself uh, since that's not my main job and it can be not distracting, but like it's, I have to shift gears to do it. So I want to make sure that I'm not taking on too much of it. Um, so that I can focus on editing, which is the, the most important thing. Totally. That brings me to another point. Your to-do list must be endless. <laughs> how, how do you prioritize everything and actually cross things off your list? That's a good question. I mean, I think in large part, it's just about um, deadlines and kind of knowing, mm-hmm. okay, well like really looking a week ahead a lot of the times, because if I'm thinking about whether I'm commissioning something or I'm writing it myself, if I'm writing it myself, I'm probably going to have to get art made for it. And so I need to get something done soon enough that I can get an art request in. Um, so that can often take precedence, but you know, typically in a given week, something will be fairly timely and that'll usually be, that'll be enough to help me prioritize like, okay, the thing I need to do today is get out this thing that, you know, we want to be the first one of the story. So I need to do that first. But other times it's like, I need to do this thing first because it's got a three week lead time. And if I don't get it in motion today, I'm going to be behind. So it's kind of shifting. Yeah. And something else that I learned while working at the New York Post is that there's such a quick turnaround, especially, I mean, I wasn't on the news team. I was in fashion, but on the news team, like you have to write that, get it edited in the same day and then have it go up like within a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I totally get that, which I guess in a way kind of makes it easier to prioritize things based on actual deadlines so that yeah. you can hit those numbers. Yeah. It's helpful to have a few things that are kind of like rooting you because on the days when I actually don't have anything pressing that like I've got a, I, I can kind of do what I want. It's, it's a little bit harder to decide what to do and to stay motivated. Yeah. I want to hop back to when you mentioned freelance. So a lot of my listeners have recently graduated college and they're the job market, especially in journalism and online editorial is, is not really hiring right now. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can walk us through the process of what you look for when people are trying to freelance. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is just a really good pitch. Um, We have a we have a document that's like, here are our guidelines for pitching. And I think, you know, you can tell when people have read that. So that is great um, that they're pitching something, well, that they've read the doc, but also that they read the site and that the pitch that they're, that they're sending us makes sense for Vice right now, that it's not something that we've covered before or something that a lot of other sites have covered before. I think um, freelancers don't always just stop and Google to make sure that it hasn't been written about for this yeah. site or written about recently. So I think doing a little bit of that initial research goes a long way. Um, I think keeping the pitch short helps a ton, you know, really getting to the point and saying what you're imagining. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is just, is this the right fit for us? You know, if it's not, that's fine. But if people, if people don't want to waste their time, I think they should, you know, do a little bit more research to make sure that, that 
that what they're pitching is actually a good fit versus blasting every editor who they would like to write for. Yes, completely agreed. It's really important to understand who the audience is for different publications because, I mean, I kind of went through this when I worked at The Post because I'm so used to writing for, I don't know, a Cosmo-esque or a Mm Glamour-esque type of vibe. So I had to totally switch gears. So learning how to pitch for The Post was totally like a new ground for me. Definitely. I I have a question. So if someone wants to freelance, whether it's for Vice, whether it's for a different publication, Mm -hmm. who who do they reach out to? Can you just cold call pitch? I mean, you can. You can can do whatever you want. I think it it is helpful to figure out who... And this can be hard to do and this takes more, more digging around and kind of more... I think one thing that is helpful is to follow a lot of people who work in media because often yeah. people will say like, if you like follow writers that you like when they're sharing their work, a lot of times they'll, they'll tag the editor to thank the editor for it. And so that's mm-hmm. you can figure out who is often editing things. Cause typically you're going to want to pitch an editor. So yeah, I think, I mean, we all get pitches that are not really for us. Like I get pitches for, you know, the culture desk and that there are things that I would never commission just because it's not what I do. And that's, it happens and it's fine. It's not the end of the world, but I think pick the few publications that you'd like to write for most and spend some time digging around to figure out. And like, if if you think you found the editor who does the most freelance commissioning, again, going to their Twitter, they're probably going to be tweeting articles that they edited. So you can start to get a sense of like, oh, how are they tweeting a bunch of articles that they're kind of taking credit for in that way. But like all of these writers are not on that particular publication's byline. Like this is probably somebody who edits a lot of freelancers. Mm, That's such great advice. And it's so interesting because honestly, I had to make a Twitter when I was at Newhouse, but I don't really use it. That's that's such a good idea to follow a lot of editors and writers who who you admire to keep up with them. Yeah, I think if you wanna if you wanna work in media, unfortunately, I, I'm not a huge fan of Twitter and media. Twitter can be a very annoying place sometimes, yeah. to be honest. But it is it is a good idea if you are trying to get a better sense. I mean, it's it's very much like networking in the true sense and learning who who in your industry. And I think it's probably worth worth doing. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I talk about a lot on the podcast about sliding into people's DMs is, a, is honestly a great way to network on top of also cold call emailing and using LinkedIn, but I have not mentioned Twitter before. That I love that. I really have to get more into the Twitter sphere. Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea if, if this yeah. is where you're going with your career. Cool, cool. Let's jump back to the beginning of your career stage. So where did you go to school and what did you study? I went to Michigan State and I studied journalism. Okay. And what what skills from college do you think helped you the most in the real world? That's a good question. I mean, I think that the journalism school taught me all the basics. So I learned AP style and I learned oh, yes. just, you know, how to how to report. Like those things are important. And I think um, having that background really is helpful. It's obviously not required and lots of people get into this other ways, but it does, I think, make it a bit easier for me when I when you got that. Um, so yeah, it was helpful in that sense. I learned, you know, about FOIA requests and things like that. Again, these are things you can learn on the job where you can kind of self-study, but I found it pretty helpful. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, another thing that I learned in college was what an edit test was. Mm-hmm. That was so helpful because I had, and a lot of people actually don't, are not familiar with edit tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find myself having to explain it to a lot of people who DM me. Mm-hmm. And 
it, it was really, really helpful because I had to fill out so many edit tests for jobs yeah. that I did not even get. So yeah. just knowing how, knowing how to pitch, as we were saying before, what, what topics are appropriate for that specific publication and what angle you have to make it different. I remember I had to fill out an edit test for Harper's Bazaar and they sent me um, an article that they had written about Meghan Markle uh, mm-hmm. for National Women's Day. And then I had to write... I had to write an article about the same thing that happened, but have a different angle on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was really challenging. I got there and I <laughs> had to do a lot of research and a lot of brainstorming, but it's all about having that, that other angle. I remember also on another edit test, I, I was given a, a press release that I had to turn into an actual article or like writing captions for Instagram and Twitter. There are... It, it, the list goes on, but that's definitely something that prepared me. Yeah, I I did not learn about that in college at all, but I think uh, it's good to keep in touch with other people who are doing the same thing you're doing. So if you don't learn about it in college, you have you know friends who went to a different school maybe who are, are experiencing these things and can share that with you. Totally. What did you think you wanted to do when you were a senior in college? Did you always know that you wanted to go into journalism? Yeah, I wanted to be a beauty editor in a magazine. That was what I wanted more than anything. Um, and so my first job out of college was at Elle in fashion, and, or I was in the accessories department. And my hope was that if I did that for a couple of years, I would be able to to become a beauty editor, kind of jump, you know, when something opened up. I just wanted to get a foot in the door. But it was, this was 2008, the recession was happening and jobs were drying up and like that just wasn't as likely at the time. So I ended up, I was living in New York. Um, I was making $24,000 a year and uh, that's just not enough money. And so I ended up leaving Elle and moving home to just kind of figure out what I was doing with my life. And at that point, um, like social media was starting to become a thing. And, and I had blogged in college before. This is before blogs were very much no, and like when I started blogging, like YouTube didn't even it really exist. So oh, wow. um, yeah, it was a big deal when we got YouTube because then you could embed videos versus having to like upload them directly oh, to yeah. a site. Like it was a really different time. So I went home and just like started blogging again and and started paying attention to what was happening on Twitter and just took on little teeny tiny local freelance jobs while living at home to just start to get clips and to start to figure out what I was doing. But they're kind of an opportunity to to work with brands and do social media for them or to write website copy for them started to kind of bubble up as, as I was at home. So that was what I did. And then I moved to Texas and took a social media job at a a, a photography studio that did like motherhood and newborn photography. Um, and then did that for a while and then worked at a startup doing community management. So, and like, so again, like there was kind of a social media and copywriting through line in all of this mm-hmm. and was doing that and then started freelancing for a bunch of different women's publications. So I started to kind of like go back to what I had hoped to do. Yeah. Uh, and then went to Loverly, which is, was a startup for, it was a wedding website. So I was the, I freelanced for them for a long time, then got on contract. So I was just basically working there like full time, but I wasn't Mm -hmm. like a full, like I was on contract. So then eventually got hired as the editorial director. So I had like full benefits and that kind of thing. I was there for a while. And then that's when I started looking for other jobs and landed at BuzzFeed. So I moved to New York. Okay. That, that is such a great career, like little snippet elevator pitch of your career journey. I want to hop back to your first job at L. Mm -hmm. So you graduated with big dreams. You moved to the big apple 
and you, you landed this amazing first job. What was that like for you? Yeah. So actually when I graduated, I won a scholarship at the very end of my senior year. So the only way to use it is like, if you take another internship, like you have to pay for the credit. So like you can use the scholarship on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't have a job lined up. So I took an internship at Self Magazine. And so I was going to come back to New York and the plan was to kind of do that and then hopefully find a full-time job quickly. And I had interned at Elle the summer before. And while I was at Self, probably in July of that summer after moving back in May, um, my former boss from when I was an intern from Elle reached out to me and said that their assistant was leaving. And so that's how I got that job. So um, it was great because it was like, you know, as a self intern, I was making like a $10 per diem each day, but like that was it. Um, At least I think so. I don't think I was paid, but I could be misremembering, but I'm fairly sure I wasn't. So yeah, it was great to find a job. And I was really, really excited. I was like, this is what I have wanted. This is what I hoped for. You know, working in accessories wasn't my first choice, but it was still like a, a magazine job. Like this is, it was great. It was, it was really exciting. I kind of have a similar experience as you did because I really wanted to work at a fashion magazine. Mm-hmm. I ended this job at the New York Post in, it was for Alexa and Alexa is basically like the Vogue. I like to call it the Vogue insert within the New York mm-hmm. Post. So mm-hmm. we basically operated like a fashion magazine and I was like, okay, like this is my foot in the door. I get to write. I get to go to fashion shows, do X, Y, Z. I'm curious what you did or what you think you did to stand out as an intern that made the L, your old boss at L, reach back out to you. Yeah. So I was one of the only interns there that summer from out of state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people at Michigan State don't really get internships at magazines. Like they're, you know, the most exciting internship a student from a journalism program might have at MSU is like the, I don't know, the Bay City Times, like there's the Detroit Free Press. Like it's not very, like, it's not particularly prestigious stuff and that's fine. But so this was a, I was kind of an outlier in that regard. Um, And then a lot of the kids who were interning at Elle were rich kids whose families, you know, who knew somebody at the magazine. And so for me, I was like, I have this one shot to make an impression. I have this one summer, I'm going to work my ass off. And so I was went in there with like the mindset of like this is it for me like I have to I have to be the best intern ever and I think I was also surrounded by people who you know slowly but surely after a month many of the interns who started the same day I did had like stopped coming in because they just didn't care they didn't want to be there they didn't have any real there were no real stakes for them they like they had money they had ever, like this just wasn't real for them this was like a fun thing they could do because like their parents had seen the hills and thought it might be fun for them to do that so like I was there first thing in the morning, I worked so hard. I ran back to that fashion closet in my heels, you know, 30 times a day. Like I was just the most diligent intern and worked so hard to prove myself. And so, uh, that's why they remember me because I worked harder than anyone else. And like really, really cared about making a good impression and just did everything I possibly could, um, to be memorable. Mm, I, I love that. And I really admire that you did that. So what, when you finally came back and now you're no longer an intern, what challenges did you face? And were you able to come in super confident? Were you intimidated at all? I mean, I came in pretty confident because I had been there the summer before and I knew what to expect. I think what I kind of wasn't prepared for was like, the really, really, really long hours. And I think just like, I wasn't totally, I don't know, like, I'm just not ultimately like a fashion person. And so I don't think I like, 
I was doing this to be able to do something else, but not because I loved fashion. And I think I just lacked kind of the ability to play the game in the way that is necessary. If you like want to move up and in fashion and want to be a fashion editor, like that was never that like that never came naturally to me. That's not something I'm particularly good at or interested in. So I just, it was hard for me to, to really get into what I was doing. Like I did it because it was my job and I like wanted, I still wanted to make a good impression, but there was just, it was a little different when it was like, the thing I'm ultimately doing is, is sending accessories on fashion shoots. This isn't, this isn't something, and like the, I can see the the career paths of the people around me and the editors and like, I don't really want their job. So it just wasn't, it just wasn't ultimately for me. Yeah. But you know what? Yes, it wasn't necessarily for you, but I think that this is something that all of my listeners really need to learn is that if you go into a job and you don't love it, it's still so valuable because now you know what you don't want to do. For sure. And I feel like that's also what kind of happened to me because you look at all these fashion editors and all these beauty editors, and it seems so glamorous from the outside. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But when you start from the bottom, it's a lot of administrative work. It's a lot of, yeah. I mean, you, you are an assistant. And of course, sometimes when you're on a small team, like I was, you really do get these amazing, amazing opportunities that make all the administrative work worth it. Mm -hmm. But it takes a lot, a lot of grunt work to to get through the day for sure. And I actually like the administrative work. It was more like the grunt work of like, you know, sending 40 pairs of high heels to, you know, to Europe for a fashion shoot and like packing Uh all the suitcases and calling them in and doing that kind of stuff. Like it was, you know, that was less, that was, that was just tiring. And it was, it was just work in a way that was not very fun. And that's, that's completely fine. But again, it wasn't like leading me to something that I was really excited to be doing. Yeah. Before we jump into your uh, career at BuzzFeed, what was the biggest lesson you learned from your job at Elle? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, it was my first job. So I learned all of the things about just like what it's like to have a job and, and about how people in an office interact and how, I don't know, just all the, the little bits of, of information that you, that you don't learn in college about like what, who to contact when you have this kind of problem or that kind of problem. And I don't know, just all those little things about office culture and what to expect there. Yeah, totally. And I think another thing that I learned just going off of that, because it seems like our first job uh, kind of overlapped, is how the fashion world operates and what the role of an editor is, and Mm -hmm. then how the relationship of the editor and the PR person exists. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like in-house PR versus the PR agency. And yeah, I feel like that's just the other thing that was a really, I mean, I had a very big learning curve with that. Yeah, I just, that's, I don't know how, I mean, maybe now it's different when there are so many blogs and fashion is a lot more, yeah. the business of it is a lot more visible, but like, I didn't know any of that. I mean, I knew a bit from being an intern, but like, that's the kind of thing you just don't really know unless you know somebody who does that and can explain it to you or show it to you. Totally. So let's talk about BuzzFeed because you were there for nearly four and a half years. Incredible. How did you land this job? So um, I just was planning to apply. I was thinking about leaving my job, was thinking about where else I might want to go. And so I had looked at some available opportunities. And at the time, they had gotten a big investment to build out their life section. So they were, they were just hiring a ton, but I was really excited about all these life jobs. And there was one for a weddings and DIY writer. And I had been writing about weddings and I had been looking at BuzzFeed and seeing how they write about, you know, just anything like funny things with gifts. And, and so I was 
like applying that to the wedding writing that I was doing. So I was like, okay, this feels like it could be a good fit. And so the website said like, if you're, if you're going to apply, like we want you to create some BuzzFeed community posts and like send those as part of your application. So I worked on creating those. And then before I even applied, the person, Peggy, who ended up hiring me, like reached out to me and was like, I saw your post and I thought you might be interested in this job that I'm hiring or some of these jobs that I'm hiring before. And I was just so shocked and so happy that I, that she saw that and made the connection before I had even applied. Oh my God. I love that. Did she email you and what was your reaction? I mean, I was just like ran around my house for (laughs) 10 minutes, just like in shock because I didn't expect it. You know, like it was, it was such a wonderful surprise. That's, that's so amazing. So now you've landed your job. What's your first day like? Take me through it. Oh gosh. I'm, let me think. I think my first day was really strange because I started on a Monday, but all these other new people, cause they were hiring so much, all these other new people were starting that Tuesday. So every like first day activity that you would normally do was all scheduled for that Tuesday, like the office tour and getting your ID photo, like all of those things. And so I just sat there the entire first day, like reading, there are a ton of, I think there was like an internal wiki with a ton of Google docs about like you know, just how to use our CMS and, and all these things. So I just sat there reading it for hours and feeling really like embarrassed that I didn't know what I needed to be doing or what I should be doing. And then later in the week, I ended up having all these like a CMS tutorial and all these other things. And I was like, yeah, I already know all this stuff because I just sat there the first day, like awkwardly wondering if I was needed to be doing something different. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot. I remember when we hired a new fashion assistant in the closet. Um, when she first started, we were in between so many shoots that mm-hmm. she was just sitting there for like a solid week just doing nothing because we were in between projects that were like almost complete. So I feel like that's not, that may not be out of the norm. No, I think that's really common actually. And I think yeah. most people worry about it. But like, yeah, when I started advice, it was actually pretty similar that my first week. I was just like, I don't think I'm doing enough and I feel worried about it. And it was totally fine. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So what was your first official title at BuzzFeed? It was senior lifestyle editor. That's amazing that you came in as a senior lifestyle editor. Yeah, it was great. I was really thrilled about that. What kinds of things did you do there? So I was writing a lot. I didn't have any direct reports for a year uh, when I made my first hire, but I mostly wrote versus editing, but I was like at editor level. So like the others, the senior editors like edited each other basically, or like would chime in for more junior people, more junior writers. So I could like hop in and edit something or give feedback on it, but I didn't have any direct reports myself. Okay, cool. And then I know that you had a lot of growth yourself when you were at BuzzFeed. Can you walk us through your position changes? Yeah. So I actually had that title of senior lifestyle editor outwardly until I left. Um, but I, so I started at like the senior editor one, which is not like a public title and then got promoted about halfway through to senior editor two. And then at the very end, I got the title of um, editorial director of Goodful. So it was sort of like, a, here's this other role you've been taking on helping build this other vertical. So it was like, you have domain over this other vertical. But so those were the titles, but more specifically, it meant like from senior editor one to senior editor two, senior editor two was about management. So I made my first hire and then the following year hired three more people, or maybe it was a year and a half or so later, but hired three more people. So then I had a full team. And then the last year that I was at BuzzFeed, I was managing managers. So really moved into management as my full-time job over. Wow. Wow. So that, that's so awesome that you were hiring your own team. 
Yeah, I loved that. It was. Yeah, I, I would love to dive into what. So, what makes a candidate stand out to you? Um, I mean, a good resume and cover letter goes a long way. I think one thing is like, I, depending on the role you're hiring for, you're just looking for relevant experience and you can tell when somebody doesn't have it. But I think what I, I would always go into this with the mindset of like, look, if somebody has a a background that doesn't totally align with this, but they can make a case for why their background doing something else actually qualifies them perfectly. And they can kind of pair that with demonstrating that they're a good writer and thoughtful and curious, like that would be enough. But so often that wasn't the case. Um, it was just people who had no experience, but they were just like, I think you should hire me for this role. And it's like, okay, like, so does everybody that, you know, like that I'm not going to do that, but thank you. So, I mean, mainly I was looking for experience in sort of related publications. If it was a more junior position, it might be like, you know, doing something well in college, um, and having an internship or two, because you want people who've who've got that experience. But um, I tried to be flexible and keep an open mind to make sure that I wasn't missing out on really great candidates who didn't necessarily have like the exact path that other people did. Yeah, totally. And I feel like right now, a lot of people are either furloughed or are struggling to find a job. Do you think that there's a big benefit in spending this time to build, you know, whether that's a personal website, a blog, a podcast, or just a personal passion project in general? Yeah. I think like that's the number one thing I recommend to everybody is like whatever kind of work you want to be doing, just start doing that work. Like if you want to, you know, I blogged the entire time I was in college. I continue to do it afterward. I still do it now. Like it demonstrates like you love doing this so much. You'll do it regardless. It's an easy way. Like there's something really great about being able to go to a potential intern's blog and to see what they do when not when they're just working for themselves, when left to their own devices and what their perspective is. And you can tell the people who put a lot of care into it and you can tell that these people are self-taught. And one intern that we had at BuzzFeed had this incredible sort of lifestyle blog with beautiful food pictures that she had taken and, and her DIY projects. And it was so good. And we loved her voice so much that we were just like, this is amazing. So, you know, regardless of what you want to do, just do that. Don't wait for somebody to give you permission Um, because that might not happen for a really long time. And even if it's not the most polished thing, like that enthusiasm comes through and it shows, it shows how you think, which I think is ultimately really important in hiring. Guys, I love, okay. I literally say this in almost every single episode and I loved your answer just now. I already know my pullout quote (laughs) is going to come from what you just said. Seriously, I mean, when when you find a passion project that you actually enjoy doing, for example, me with this podcast, right? Yep. I love doing this and I'm not doing it because, oh, I get to put it on my resume or, oh, you know, it'll look good when I am trying to look for a job. I'm actually just doing this for myself mm-hmm. and, and to empower other women to build this platform. And when you do it for yourself, it means you're the real deal and people will want to hire you for that. Similar to the standout intern candidate you just mentioned. Yeah. So what was the most challenging part about management at BuzzFeed? Sometimes I got to hire and that was really exciting. And other times we would restructure and I would be managing people who I didn't hire. And I think that is always going to be more challenging because you know, like I look for certain things when I hire and I like give it a certain edit test and I do things a certain way. And so when you are charged with people who, who just didn't necessarily go through that process, their sort of experience or their values or whatever might not totally align. So I think for me, the challenge of, of getting to know people who 
uh, I didn't hire myself and, and building trust between us and building relationships was definitely something that I, that I worked on and got better at over time. How did you go about creating and maintaining those relationships with those people who you were managing? I had weekly one-on-ones with people um, so that we always had that FaceTime. I try to be really honest, but also kind and compassionate. I never want to bullshit people. And I think that's important that they know what they can expect from me, but also making sure that I'm aware of what they're hoping for, like what their career goals are, what they want to be doing so that I can, you know, help, you know, when they're pitching or whatever it might be, like I can help make sure that they're, you know, every quarter or every six months getting to do things that feel really exciting to them and really in line with what they're hoping to do. Um, I think just there's so many ways you can demonstrate that you care about your employees. And so I, I just thought about that a lot. Like I really, management was my job and I treated being a good manager like my job. It wasn't something I did when I wasn't writing or editing. It was like, I, my job is to be a manager. That's the most important thing. You seem like you were such a great boss. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I love managing. I, I do miss it a bit. Yeah. Oh, what was the most rewarding part of being at BuzzFeed? BuzzFeed's audience is so big. It's just so remarkable that the number of people who can read an article that you wrote, and that is just something that will never not be special to know that you you know, like for a long time, having a hundred thousand views on an article was considered like, a, oh, this article didn't do well. Like what went wrong? And that like, that's so remarkable. So for me, like getting to put content that I felt really good about, or not even my own content, but that I edited and like sort of brought into the world, getting to put that service in front of the people who needed it and know that hundreds of thousands of people read it, like that is just so remarkable to me. Yeah, it's so, isn't it so mind-blowing? And, and your articles are reaching so many people who you don't even know from yeah, around the world. Strangers. It's so, it's so special. I know. It, it is so crazy. Um, I really want to talk about your side hustles and passion projects because I know that a job in editorial, especially when you have a leadership role, it's a lot of work. So how, how do you blog? How do you publish a weekly newsletter? How did you write a book at the same time on top of a full-time job? So my first book I wrote, I like wrote kind of, I took time off to write it basically. And I had to turn it around huh. really quickly. So I took like a few days off here and then we had a long weekend. So I was able to get like a chunk of it done um, over like President's Day and over Christmas, I think too. And then I took another week off that again was kind of surrounded by a long weekend. So it basically had like, I think maybe 20, maybe, mm, I don't remember exactly how many days I had it, maybe between 10 and 20 to just work on it solely. And then had to do edits and things like that on weekends. So it actually was fairly good to have this tight deadline because it made me buckle down and focus. I had to be really disciplined. Um, so that was how I did dot journaling for the art of showing up. I actually signed the contract right after I got laid off from Buzzfeed. So that I was kind of like, well, I guess that's what I'm doing now. Um, so I worked on that mostly last spring and summer and turned it in, in early August. And then I started working at Vice and at the end of September. So, um, that's how that worked now. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't actually blog that much. I, I was doing a better job of it, but this summer has been kind of wild. So I haven't been doing blogs regularly, but like my weekly newsletter is the one thing that I do buckle down and do every single Sunday. Um, so for me, it doesn't feel like I'm actually doing that much. Cause I'm like, this is 
because I want to be doing so much more and I wish I was doing so much more. We only have so much time. Exactly. And so for me, it's like the newsletter is the one thing that if I can't do anything else, like I can just do that. I've found ways to make it as quick, goes kind of as quickly as I can. But um, yeah, I would love to be doing more. I think most people, myself included, just like you never feel like you're doing enough. Totally, totally agree with you. And I feel like that's almost why some people feel like they don't, like they aren't ready to start a passion project or anything. But we're here to tell you that you don't necessarily even have to stay that consistent. I mean, of course, it's the goal to publish, you know, one podcast a week or one blog post a week. Um, But if you fall off because life happens, that's okay. Yeah, totally. I I didn't realize that you got laid off from BuzzFeed. So what mm-hmm. year was that and, and what, what was going through your mind? That was uh, the very end of January, 2019. And I mean, the whole thing was, it was so bad. They, ha- they laid off so many people, the way that it was handled. Like basically there was a leak on a Wednesday night that layoffs were coming. We went in Thursday and we're like, what, what's happening? And then it was just the way leadership rolled it out was really disjointed. Uh, we were told not, we didn't need to come in on Friday because like basically they were like, yeah, we're laying people off. But we don't know who yet. It's, it's not done yet. So just hang out till we decide. Um, we had no more information about when we were going to find out. Like it was really badly handled. And we were told not to come in on, our team was told, you don't need to come in on Friday because our layoffs aren't going to start happening till next week. Then we got an email at four in the morning that Friday. It was like, actually we're doing it. Our team's layoffs today. So come in. I, as a manager, wasn't being told like, I was basically like, am I going to find out who on my team is being laid off before they do? Am I going to be the one laying people off? I couldn't get a straight answer. And that like Friday morning around 11 a.m., I finally got a Slack that was like, can you come to blah, 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 HR room? And I was like, great, finally, somebody's going to tell me what's happening. And then I got laid off in there and found out my entire team was being laid off. And I was just I, like, I was so shocked at at the fact that my whole team got cut. Like there were people who, you know, I thought like they might take one or two people from our team. I don't know because every team is going to have to, to experience that. But the, the fact that like, it just was so brutal and, and included me and that I wasn't given a heads up about it was really frustrating. And like, I mean, I poured so much into BuzzFeed over the years and like, I worked really, really hard to make BuzzFeed better and did so many things that were outside of the scope of my job over the course of four years, like was really committed to, to editing content that was like potentially problematic or racist or sexist. Like I was like at the forefront of helping BuzzFeed do better with that. So to get laid off of that warning was really, really unexpected. And just, I don't know, it was, it was like, I wouldn't say it was devastating. It was just so shocking um, because this job had been my life for four years and I adored my team and I was just so sad for them. And I was really angry that I didn't get to lay them off myself. Like I couldn't get any answers about like when they were going to be laid off, when would they find out who was going to tell them? So I just had to like wait to wait for them to get laid off one by one. Um, So it was, it was a really bad day. It was really sad. And, and you know, it ultimately it's fine. Um, And I'm just I moved on fairly quickly and luckily had my book to work on, but it, it was really disappointing. And it was a good reminder that like companies don't care about you, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so crazy. And I feel like that happens more often when a company is so large. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I mean, my whole entire fashion team was furloughed from the post during this whole uh, coronavirus time. And the way that it was handled was not necessarily the best per se. So I definitely know how you feel. 
Um, but I, I like to say everything happens for a reason, not because I think everything is fate and like the universe has a plan written out. But when you, when you experience that period of time in your life and then you look back at it and you're like, Oh, I learned this from that. Mm -hmm. So that's why that happened. Right. And, and now when you look back, you were able to embark on a book journey yeah, it was, it was, I was really fortunate in that timing that I was able to, um, to jump right into something and something so exciting. Like that was great. And I, it was just sort of a fluke that it happened that way, but I'm so glad that it did. Yeah. So what's your process with writing books and how did you come up with the idea? And also before, before you get into it, I just want to say for those of you who are not familiar with Rachel's writing, her first book is called Dot Journaling, A Practical Guide, How to Start and Keep the Planner, To-Do List, and Diary That'll Actually Help You Get Your Life Together. And then her second book, which is the book that we are referring to right now, is called On Friendship in the Age of Flakiness, The Art of Showing Up, How to Be There for Yourself and Your People. This book was, it started actually as a BuzzFeed post that I had written um, with the help of other people on my team, but it, it was sort of like, this is my idea. And I, I felt really strongly about this. So um, my publisher had come back to me about doing a second book, maybe something about self-care. And I was kind of mm-hmm. saying, I think if I were going to do another book, I think showing up is the thing that I would want to do. So I kind of talked through it with them. And then this is what we landed on. Um, this one was in part, like it was the idea for it was built into this post. So I, and I had been writing about this topic in other ways. So I had like a body of work to pull on, but I also just had so much more research to do. Like I just had tons of reading and research. So mm-hmm. a lot of the beginning was just pulling all the things I had written before into one place and then really figuring out, okay, where do I, you know, that BuzzFeed post was, was short. It really focused on showing up for friends. Whereas the book, the whole first half is about showing up for yourself. Mm. So it was just figuring out, okay, how, what does that actually look like? And what is this book going to look like? So it was making, you know, an outline and a table of contents and then coming up with a big research plan to, to get everything I needed kind of together to be able to start writing. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. What are the main differences between writing for a publication versus writing a book? Yeah, I think it depends on the publication and it depends on the book, but I was fortunate that both of these books were very similar to the kind of writing that I do all the time. So it it wasn't wildly different. Ultimately, like the biggest difference is that you have more room to talk about things. Like you just have more space. You can say more. Um, But ultimately it kind of felt like each of these chapters or within each of these chapters, these sort of subcategories or subsections um, were like writing a post. So, and like thinking about it that way really helped me divide up the work. But ultimately this writing was so similar to what I normally do that it felt like a really, really, really huge version of the work I would normally do. That That's so amazing. How did it feel when you first like saw your book in real life and held it in your hands. It was really exciting. And with dot journaling, it was like exciting, but I didn't, it was a different kind of book. Like I wasn't, it wasn't something that was like quite as personal as this one where it's like, this is the thing I care about a lot. And I've put a lot of thought into over the course of my life. And I'm just, it was just different. And, um, seeing this book, it like the cover is so beautiful and the colors are so lovely. And like, it was really exciting to see it and to to realize like, oh, I wrote this and it's going to be on shelves. It just felt a bit different than the first one. Um, I, I love that book and I'm really proud of it, but this one is just like more me ultimately. Yeah. And I, I also just think, and this is something that came up in my conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with a fashion designer. And she said that her first 
collection that she developed was definitely not her strongest, but I think that just comes with learning. And of course, every, and now for your third book that I'm sure you will write, it will improve even more. I hope so. I don't know if there, I have no plans for a third book right now. We'll have to see that <laughs> not yet, maybe. <laughs> so I'm curious what the process is like working with a publisher and how did you get connected with him or her? Um, my publisher reached out to me directly for um, dot journaling, which is really unusual for the most part. Books like you need an agent to sell a book, mm-hmm. and what what them reaching out to me directly and not having an agent is just doesn't normally happen. Um, and then I just worked with the same publisher for my second book with no agent. So again, that's really uncommon, and I don't know that I could have like sought that out if I had wanted it. Um, but it's working out for me. Obviously, there's. Um, pros and cons to having an agent. But in my case, like I have a relationship with this publisher that's really good. And that means that on the one hand, I can't like go for, I don't have an agent to negotiate with like Mm -hmm. a bunch of publishing houses and trying to get more money, but I also don't have to give anyone a cut of what I ultimately make off of it. So it's worked out very well for me. Totally. So I'm curious about the process of writing. So here you are, you're writing each of your chapters. Do you collaborate with your publisher at all? Or do you have a team who also helps you edit? Yeah, I had an editor who was working with this me on this book directly, like beginning to end. She was lovely. She was really helpful. So we met in the beginning to talk about what we thought could be in it and kind of brainstorm. And occasionally I would reach out to her when I was working on it to just bounce ideas off of her um, and see what she thought. So yeah, she really helped guide it and, and really helped shape it. Oh, that's amazing. And then how, how did this amazing cover come to life? Because I am so drawn to the colors. Oh, thank you. Um, so the way it works is usually like you, the art team comes up with it, their in-house art team. I can't remember if they asked me for thoughts initially or not. I think that they did. And I sent a little bit. And then the first cover they sent me was very, very different than what I had been envisioning. And I wasn't crazy about it. And so I went back to them and was like, here's how this is coming across to me. And here's why I think that might not be great. And I sent them just like a huge inspiration board of like 40 different images that I was like, this is more the vibe I was thinking and was a bit worried of like whether they were going to be cool with that or whether they were going to get it. And they sent back the cover that is on the book now. And they're like, what do you think of this? And I was like, that's amazing. We're done. Great. Perfect. I love that. And and it just shows that you do not have to be a graphic designer to give creative input. So before we go, the last thing that I just wanted to ask you is what advice would you offer to those who are aspiring journalists or want to enter the editorial industry, especially during COVID? I think kind of what we talked about earlier, like figure out what you want to do and find a way to do it for yourself. Don't Mm -hmm. wait for anyone to give you permission. And, you know, whether that gets you a job directly or not is kind of not the point. It keeps you, it keeps you fresh. It keeps your, it keeps you curious. It keeps your mind working. You learn new skills in the process of doing it. So, um, you know, we have all of these great tools at our disposal and, and you can just, you can publish things to Instagram. You can start a blog. You can do that yourself. And so I think if that's, if you want to, go into writing in some form, just find a way to write and start writing and do that and um, be patient because, you know, my career obviously took me on a winding road and I didn't, there were times in there where I was like, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going to land. And to some degree, I still don't write. Like, I don't know what, mm-hmm. what's next for me and I don't even know what my ultimate goal is. And that's fine. I think just sort of trust that you'll get there and it might take five years or 10 years after college to kind of have everything fall into place. And that's pretty 
common and that's okay. Yeah, I, I really love that advice. Before we go, I always like to head out with a gaze goal of the week. My episodes are released on Sundays, so we will just set a realistic self-care goal for the upcoming week to kick the week off on a positive note. That's a good question. Um, I think I really need to get back into working out, and I haven't yet, so I think my goal for the week is going to be to find a way to work out once or twice. I was literally going to say the same exact thing. (laughs) I really just need to get back on track and move my body. Um, I'm definitely just feeling like even if I were to go on a walk or run, just something, and it does not have to be an intense workout, just some sort of movement into my day. Same. Well, Rachel, this was so lovely. I really enjoyed getting to know you and speaking with you and having you come on the podcast. Yeah, this was so fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. And of course, thank all of you girl gazers for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Leave a five-star written review if you haven't already. And make sure to follow along at Girl Gaze Pod. See you guys next Sunday.